Welcome to another night of Warrior Reads. As always, make sure that you've handled anything before bed, that the room is dark, and that you're in a comfortable position. Remember, as you're listening, if you get excited by a story or interested, don't worry about it. Now is not the time for your mind to be racing. Now is the time for your mind to be resting. As always, we'll have copies of the recordings available on our website, as well as even the ability to order it should you want to in the morning. Now is the time for your reward for a good day lived or a reminder to be a warrior tomorrow. I'll give you about five seconds to clear your head and then we'll begin. Welcome, warriors. Tonight, our selection is from the book Mastery Interviews with 30 Remarkable People by Joan Evelyn Ames. Warriors, you walk the warrior path and work hard to be the best you. You live out your hero's journey because it's the story of every single movie, book, or show or play that you've ever loved. It's the story of us. It runs through our veins. It's entrenched in our DNA. In your path to be the best you, your courage is tested. Your strength will be required. And for passing the trials and tests, your reputation as a warrior of honor precedes you. And along the way, you must master your skills, your craft, and yourself. Tonight we'll be going through an interview with Bill Dillinger, considered one of the world's foremost experts on distance running. He's a world record-breaking track star who ran in three Olympic games. In addition to receiving an Olympic bronze for his own athletic prowess, he has served as coach to the great Olympic champions Steve Prefontaine, Alberto Salazar, and Mary Decker Slaney. He has been chosen National Coach of the Year on three separate occasions. His story reminds us of the power of your determination and that when you pass through the trials and tribulations of your journey and emerge a hero, that there is a real joy to be found in mentoring others to do the same. As always, you can read this book at any time in the future, and it's worth the read. But this selection is a great example of a warrior who committed themselves to mastery and then mastered the skill of building up other warriors themselves. As you fall asleep and let go of the trials and victories of the day, allow your inner warrior to soak in the inspiration to achieve the victories that you have waiting for you on your path and master the skills you need to achieve them. So relax and enjoy. Bill Dillinger has an illustrious track record at the University of Oregon. He's been either running or coaching there for the past five decades, building an impressive list of accomplishments year after year. Considered one of the world's foremost experts on distance running, Coach Dillinger has trained many All-Americans NCAA champions, and Olympic champions, including superstars Steve Prefontaine, Alberto Salazar, 
and has also overseen the careers of outstanding post-collegians like Olympians Danny Lopez and Mary Slaney. Dillinger started running for Oregon under Bill Bowerman in 1953, won the NCAA mile in 54, was the two-mile champion in 55, the 5,000-meter champion in 56, and won three Pacific Coast Conference titles before his graduation. In the next four years, he had broken two world indoor records and six American records. His distinguished career as a distance runner continued through three Olympics, 56, 60, and 64, culminating in a bronze medal for the 5,000 meter and Tokyo 64 games. He also served as assistant coach for men's distance runners at Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. Dillinger has trained many winning teams since he became head coach for the men's track and field program at the University of Oregon in 1973. In track competitions under coach Dillinger, U of O has been among the nation's top 10 NCAA teams of 15 occasions, placing first in 1984. They have also won numerous NCAA and Pacific Conference cross-country titles. On three separate occasions, Dillinger has been named the National Coach of the Year, and in 1990, his peers voted him the National Coach of the Year in both cross-country and outdoor track. He is the author of The Running Experience and Winning Running, and is co-author with Bill Freeman of the Competitive Runners Training Book. I met with Coach Dillinger in his office, overlooking Hayward Field at the University of Oregon in Eugene. As we were finishing the interview, he pointed to a slim and finely muscled female figure warming up in the straightaway on the track below us. It was Mary Slaney, the greatest female distance runner in American history. During the coaching session, Dillinger instructed Slaney to run the quarter mile lap in 66 seconds, then jog a lap run a lap, and so on. She ran the first lap with apparent effortlessness in 64 seconds. He expressed gentle concern and instructed her to slow down to 66. On the next lap, she clocked in at 65. He inquired about a problem she had been having with her right foot. It was feeling fine, she said, but she dutifully accepted his gentle warning and slowed down until she hit her final lap at 66 on the dot. Here was moderation, one of Dillinger's key training principles in action. As he explained, injury and burnout are two big problems for runners. And though it may seem counterintuitive, it's always better to undertrain than overtrain. So then they dove into the interview. Do you have some basic ideas about how people become masterly in any field? I've always believed if you do something long enough, you're gonna get good at it. I felt that way about my own running. While I definitely had talent, I don't know that it was any better than anyone else's. I also had the determination and stuck with it long enough to get about as good as I was going to get. One of the reasons I ended up in track and field is because of the type of people drawn to these sports. 
People in track are really easy to work with because of their motivation. They have learned that the only way to get ahead is through a lot of self-discipline and hard work. I like that. In fact, when you find the really good athletes in track, they're usually so motivated and want to succeed so much that your hardest job as a coach is holding them back. You don't find that in a lot of other sports. Take someone like Alberto Salazar, a world record holder in the marathon and a great runner for us here at Oregon. The hardest thing in developing him was keeping him from doing too much. It's the same with Mary Slaney. She's been on four of our Olympic teams and held every American record from the 800 through the 10,000 meters. At 38, she's still very motivated to run and set world records. Yet, she still hasn't learned. She gets hurt because she wants to run too fast all the time. How does a coach get the most outstanding performance from an athlete? I've said all along that if I knew how to do that, I'd be the greatest coach ever. Because everyone is capable of doing a lot more than they normally will do. Unfortunately, the mind really controls the body and its output and is very conservative when it comes to what the body does. If our minds would allow it, we're capable of going way beyond what is now being done in athletic performances. Look at Bob Beeman's famous 29-foot jump in the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico. It was a couple of feet beyond the world record for the long jump at that time and stood as the record for almost 30 years. He doesn't even remember his jump. I think there was an instant when he wasn't being inhibited by his mind and so was able to perform that way. There's a special flow of energy that runners have and to this day, I don't know how I got that when I was racing. At the Tokyo Olympics, I was dragging along feeling like I had no energy and couldn't go any faster. Suddenly, that flow started and I felt like I could fly. I ran the last 400 meters in 53 seconds. I just believe that hard work and preparation is the best way we can do our job as coaches. Granted, you've got to have some talent, but I've always said that competition is at least 90% preparation. Also, you can be the best athlete in the world, get to the Olympic Games, come down sick with the flu, and not even qualify for the final. So timing and luck are definitely involved. What are the keys to great coaching? In track, and perhaps in any sport, it's a matter of communication almost on a daily basis. Asking the athletes how they feel and adapting the workout to fit constantly varying conditions like weather and terrain. It's love for the sport, making the workouts fun and rewarding, really caring about the kids and how well they do. We have five principles in our running program and I think they pertain to anything in life as well. They are adaptability, progression, moderation, variation, and callousing. I've never been any place where I couldn't run. 
when I was in the Air Force, stationed at a remote radar site in the Washington coast. There was no track to train on. I ran up and down the beaches, adapting my program to those conditions. As a coach, I must have the ability to adapt the athlete's workouts on a daily basis, depending on their fitness level, the training conditions, and so on. A coach needs to help his runners build confidence in their potential for success. If I'm giving them workouts that they continually can't do, I'm not helping them. The primary goal is to allow them to succeed, and success breeds success. If they succeed in workouts, and succeed in workouts, and succeed in workouts, then you add the principle of progression to the program. Gradually, the workouts are getting harder. You develop a talent by succeeding at each step before you go to the next. That progression over a long period is very important to the program. Then there is a principle of moderation. Moderation is very important in your lifestyle, as well as your athletic training. People become fanatics in so many different ways. About religion, about diet, about alcohol, and in their training programs. Even the good things are bad for you, if not done in moderation. You could pay close attention to your body. After a good workout, you should feel refreshed or pleasantly fatigued, but not tired. Runners who suffer from frequent injuries, even minor ones, or poor health, are probably overtraining. The fourth principle in our training program is variation. We bring in many different types of training systems and adapt them to our situation. For example, years ago, the Scandinavians developed something called fartlek training. Fartlek is a Swedish word meaning speed play. And it was done on trails in the woods, not on a track. You run fast, run slow, all different things that you do in a race, except you do it off the track in a setting where it's real pleasant. By including the best of many training systems, the individual can take advantage of all the variations rather than getting stuck on just one. We're always looking for a better way to improve our training program. Because if you ever reach a point where you think, this is it, this is our system, then you're looking for it to become stale. There will always be a better way. Finally, there's the callousing principle. If I were to go out with a shovel and work all day, I'd end up with a bunch of blisters on my hand because I haven't done any manual labor in a long time. Yet, if I went out and shoveled for 15 minutes and gradually put progression to it, I'd reach a point where I'd have calluses on my hands and could work eight hours a day without a blister. You don't go out and try to run a race at uneven pace without doing some uneven running in your training. So when I say that competition is 90% preparation, the callousing principle is an important part of that preparation. In coaching, you try to take runners through workouts presenting different things that can happen to them in a race. Unfortunately, you cannot anticipate everything. There's always something that will happen in a race, and you think, I wish I'd prepared for that. 
The best example of the callousing principle occurred in the 1956 Olympics in Australia. The Russian runner, Vladimir Kutz, had been defeated three straight times by Gordon Perry in the 10,000 meter. Those two were clearly the best runners in the world at the time. Gordon Perry would always just set on Vladimir Kutz and let him do the work. Then, in the last 300 yards, when Kutz didn't have any speed left, Perry would sprint by him and win the race. When we got to Melbourne, Perry boasted to the press that he was going to win the 10,000 that way. About a week before the Olympics, I was out training on a cricket ground with Jim Bailey, a teammate of mine. We saw this little blonde guy, about 5'7", doing some strange training routine. He was sprinting down the straightaway of the cricket field, jogging across the end, sprinting down the other side. He'd do it for a while, and then he would run two or three laps at hard pace and jog a lap. He was doing a bunch of slow, fast running that no one had ever seen in a race at that time. So when the gun went off at the Olympic 10,000 meter race, here was this little guy we'd been watching on the cricket grounds. It was Coots. He sprinted out into the lead and runs the first lap in 58 seconds. To run a world record 10,000 back then, you had to run 70 second laps all the way. But he keeps going at 60 second lap pace. And right behind him is Gordon Perry. Because Perry is going to set on him and let him do all the work, just like he told the press. But the half mile, they have a full half lap lead because everyone else is running 70 second laps. Now, you have to run 25 laps around the track to do the 10,000 meters. And Coots went through the whole series of laps where he would sprint the straightaway, jog the turn, sprint the straightaway, and jog the turn. Meanwhile, Perry was right behind him, doing everything the same way. Point is, Vladimir Coots had prepared himself to run this way, and Gordon Perry had never run at an uneven pace. So after they get to about the 18th lap, Coots slows down, turns around, and motions for Perry to pass him. Perry shakes his head, no, he wouldn't pass. So Coots takes off and sprints again. This happens two or three times. Finally, Coots sprints down the straightaway with Perry right behind him and stops on the track. And Perry has no choice. He either stops on the track and stands with Coots, perhaps letting everyone catch him, or he passes Coots. Well, Perry makes the decision to go around him. And as soon as he does, Coots takes off on a sprint right past Perry. At this point, Perry can't do more than a jog, and Coots ends up winning the race, running in the outside lane with his arms up in the air at the crowd. Perry jogged in dead last. It was a fantastic race, and it showed that you don't run the other person's race or do something that you haven't calloused yourself to do. You train and prepare to run the race that you want to run. So the whole purpose of training is to be able to compete. I try to get the individuals I'm working with to understand that 
they're training for a reason. There's not training to be training. And they don't just want to become a workout king. There are a lot of athletes who don't get that concept. I have runners that handle workouts great, but they don't do the necessary recovery or light running in between. When it comes time to the race, all the training in the world isn't going to help you any good if you can't apply it to the race itself. When did you first become aware that you were a runner? As a kid, I never thought of myself as being a runner, but I really enjoyed running and ran everywhere I went. I can remember when my mom sent me to the store. It was always a contest. I turned it into a race. She would tie me and I'd see how fast I could run the three blocks down the store, pick up whatever she needed and get back home. I just loved to run. When I was in the ninth grade, the physical education teacher had the whole class run a three quarter mile on the track. I remember very clearly coming by the teacher on the first lap, way out in the front of everyone, and him stepping out and telling me to slow down. On the second lap, he stepped out, waved his arms at me, and said, Slow down, Sonny. I finishing way ahead of everyone. I didn't know it, but he was the track coach. And later, that day, he came to my classroom and talked to me about coming out for track. There was a certain amount of luck involved in that, and it really changed my life. I firmly believe today that the things that happen to our athletes when they're growing up in middle school are the most important elements in their physical development as athletes. Those are the times when you're out playing and running all the time. You may have been born with a superior cardiovascular system, and because of that, you like to run. So because you've run a lot while playing, you develop what's already superior even more. And later on in life, you find out you're a great runner. And it was all done in the developing years when you didn't even know it. I also think leadership abilities go way back to those early years as well. When we were kids, leadership was developed among our peers. We used to go out into the field after school and pick up two leaders who would pick the teams. Then we'd play among ourselves. Through trial and error, we learned what we did best and then developed that. It's a different world we live in today where almost all kids' sports are organized and supervised by adults. It's Little League this, Little League that, with coaches choosing the teams and telling the kids who can play. So kids don't have the opportunity to develop the leadership qualities. Of course, these days, kids watch television or sit and play Nintendo on computers. So naturally, the only sports they get involved in are those organized by adults. What are some of the high or low points of your Olympic career? I ran in three Olympics. The first was in 1956 in Melbourne, where I was pretty naive. The greatest thing that happened to me was to make the Olympic team. That was my goal. Once in Australia, I was caught up with the atmosphere of the Olympics, marching in the opening ceremonies, trading pens with other athletes, and being in awe of Vladimir Kutz. Four years later, I was 26 years old and just out of the Air Force. 
I had gone back to school for a year to get my master's degree so I could train for the 1960 Olympics. Just prior to the Olympics in Rome, I beat Gordon Perry in a 3,000-meter race in Bern, Switzerland. Perry was then considered one of the favorites in the 5,000 meters, so I knew that I was going to run pretty well in Rome. However, I arrived in Italy, got dysentery, and spent a week sicker than a dog. That's the luck factor. I actually ran in the race, in spite of losing 15 pounds and feeling weak. I finished the race, but I didn't qualify. They took the top three to the finals, and I finished fourth. That must have been disappointing. Well, it was. But you recover pretty fast from something like that once you get over being sick. So, ten days after the Olympics, I beat the guy who was the Olympic silver medalist in the 5,000-meter race in Athens, Greece. A few days later, I beat the guy who was the bronze medalist in a 3,000-meter race in Finland. About three weeks after the Olympics, I ended up running a two-mile race with Murray Haldberg in London. He had just won the gold medal in the 5,000 meters, and he and I tied. I set a new American record in that race. What a great comeback. Sometimes defeat is what spurs a person to keep going. As I tell the guys I train with, everyone needs to learn how to handle defeat, take advantage of it, and use it to improve. Sometimes you're better off learning from defeat than going through life winning all the races. Anyway, I didn't run for the next three years. When you make a national team, it's like being in a herd of sheep. I just got tired of traveling all over, being herded around by these AAU officials and getting a dollar a day per diem. During those years, I was a school teacher, but in the back of my mind, I knew I was going to run in 1964, that I had to run in one more Olympics and win something. In the fall of 63, I started to train. I went through a lot of aches and pains. My ankle swelled up on me. I ran through that. Then my knees swelled up on me. I got through that. Then I had a problem with a hip that bothered me. It took me until Christmas to get through all the various pains. How much were you running? I'd get up at 6 in the morning and run 7 miles to school, take a shower, put on my teacher's clothes, and teach all day. I'd coach track, lay down for about a half hour and rest, go out and do my own workout, and end up running back home. I'd take a shower and be in bed by 9 every night, then up the next morning and repeat that process all year long. By December, it was still dark when I'd arrive at school and I was getting pretty tired of running in the mud and rain in the morning with the logging trucks going by spraying me with water. Anyway, this one day, I remember running into the parking lot, and another teacher, who always drove up just when I jogged in, said to me, Dillinger, I'm just waiting for the day that I drive up here, and you don't show up, because I don't think you're going to make it through the winter. He didn't know it, but those were fighting words. So that little episode spurred you. Well, it encouraged me even more. 
I mean, I wasn't going to quit. Part of my makeup was not to quit, but this remark helped. Through all that, all my dreaming, daydreaming, and nightdreaming, I probably ran that race in Tokyo at least 10,000 times in my mind. I ran that race through all kinds of conditions, through all kinds of things happening, and through different stages in the race. And I always won it. The thought never entered my mind. Never for a fleeting second that I might not make our Olympic team. The whole goal, everything in my mind, was winning the 5,000 meter Olympic race. When I actually ran it and ended up third, I was very, very disappointed. Everybody thinks that I had to be really thrilled getting that bronze medal. I wasn't. I was really mad at myself because I knew I should have won it. Is this visualization of winning a technique that many great athletes use? Definitely. The great athletes who achieve probably all go through something like that. If they can't see themselves being a winner in their own mind, their chances of being a winner are really pretty slim. So I try to get the athletes I train to see themselves as winners. You know, it takes more than just dreaming. You've got to be able to go out and do the hard work that's involved. That goes back to the principle of progression. As a coach, you've got to be smart enough to adapt workouts so that your athletes can be winners and then put progression to it. Who knows how far they can go? What keeps you growing and expanding as a coach? Well, wanting to win is one of those things. I guess wanting to win is an ego thing, but I also am realistic with it. While winning is certainly a goal to have, I know that you can't win all the time and that winning isn't everything. I think everybody is seeking recognition in one way or another. I tried a lot of different things and found out I could run and had the personality to stick with it. I don't know whether it's a flaw or not, but I stick with things. Even to this day, my friends know that it's one more game, one more game, one more game until I finally win. I don't like losing, I guess, but I found what I like to do. I like coaching. I like working with young people and it's not work for me because it's something I really love to do. So that's amazing. If everybody could do that, it would be a great world.